0: Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center.
1: Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us this evening. I'd especially like to welcome the uh, Carter Center supporters and members of the Atlanta consular community who are with us here tonight. My name is Matthew Hodas. I'm the director of the Carter Center's Conflict Resolution Program, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the fourth program in this year's Conversations at the Carter Center series. The series gives us an opportunity to engage our neighbors here in Atlanta with our efforts here at the Carter Center to wage peace, fight disease, and build hope around the world. While the conflict resolution program has had a global mandate where we monitor and engage in conflicts around the world, and while we've operated in many countries or many regions, it's safe to say that no conflict generates as much interest or as much passion as the conflict between Israel and its Palestinian neighbors. Tonight we'll seize the opportunity to take stock of where we are and examine the prospects for peace that may still be. After our speakers complete their initial conversation, you will get an opportunity to ask them questions. And if you have not already uh, written a uh, a question and submitted it to Uh, our volunteers please do so now as they walk up the aisles. The speakers will answer as many questions as time permits. Tonight's conversationalists really don't need much of an introduction and are both long-established figures in global affairs. Uh, Our lead-off speaker tonight will be Madeleine Albright. Secretary Albright is and will always be known as the first woman to be Secretary of State of the United States. Uh, prior to her appointment, from 93 to 97, she also served as our permanent representative at the United Nations. And I should note uh, that sometime before that, she had begun her public service career in a different forum, uh, serving on President Carter's National Security Council staff, and even before that, working for Senator Ed Muskie. Dr. Albright is currently a principal of the Albright Group, LLC, a global strategy firm. She's also the first Michael and Virginia Mortara endowed distinguished professor in the practice of diplomacy at the Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. And she's the chair of the National Democratic Institute for International Affairs. And she is the chairman of the the Pew Global Attitudes Project, and the president of the Truman Scholarship Foundation. Uh, She also finds time to be the co-chair of the Commission on Legal Empowerment of the Poor and also serves on the Board of Directors of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Board of Trustees for the Aspen Institute. Following Dr. Albright's comments will be the comments of our other speaker, the 39th President of the United States and winner of the 2002 Nobel Peace Prize, Jimmy Carter. We all know that President Carter's role in the Middle East has been long and historic. He negotiated peace between Israel and Egypt through the Camp David Accords during his presidency and has remained actively engaged in Middle East peace processes and discussions about them ever since he left the White House. He stayed in touch with the major players and the leaders from the countries that uh, are are all over the Holy Land and has made numerous trips to the region, most recently as an observer to Palestinian elections in both 2005 and 2006. His long-standing commitment to a two-state solution that preserves peace for the Israelis, and Justice for the Palestinians is well known. And in that spirit, he provided the keynote address to the formal launching of the Geneva Initiative in 2003, which is a model agreement drafted by the veterans of the 2000 Camp David negotiations and 2001 Taba negotiations uh, of what a final status settlement could look like. Some of you may also be aware that he's written a book about this topic recently. (laughs) His recent book, Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid, has stirred debate around the world and is currently on the New York Times bestseller list. In 1982, after leaving the White House, he and his wife, Rosalind founded the Carter Center, a nonpartisan organization that works to resolve conflict, promote democracy, protect human rights, and prevent disease around the world. Please welcome President Carter and Dr. Albright.
2: Thank you very much, Mr. Hodas and it's a pleasure to be here with all of you and to be here with President and Mrs. Carter. I, am, uh, I was so pleased when this invitation was proffered and always delighted to do something with uh, President Carter. Uh, we had a great time about a month ago, I guess, at, in Athens. Um, Doing, uh, celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Carter Inauguration and it provided us all a great opportunity to reminisce and uh, rebond and thank you so much for that too. I, uh, I deeply admire uh, this President um, and uh, I deeply admire all the books that he has written. I, I've written two books and I know how hard it is and President Carter has written about 20 uh, including a lot of bestsellers and some that are deeply moving and universally popular. Then there are those that um, seem to invite some controversy. <laughs> Consider, for example, President Carter's provocatively entitled book The Little Baby Snuggle-Fleeger with illustrations by Amy. <laughs> uh, I uh, very much appreciate the hospitality here and a, a chance to really have a conversation about the Middle East and uh, related topics. Let me say that um, I found when I became Secretary of State that, uh, and I went back over the record of other secretaries, everyone would say, I didn't really want to become involved in the Middle East, and then was. I think it's probably also true of presidents, uh, and even some who would like to escape it, such as our current one. Um, The Bush administration has said that President Clinton actually tried to do too much, Uh, I think in retrospect, it's hard to say that it's ever possible to blame anyone for trying too hard. So I'm very proud of both the presidents for whom I worked, and especially in uh, their work on the Middle East. But what I hope today, if I might, is to focus our discussion on the present and the future. And so for the purposes of this conversation, I'd like to lay out some principles. Peace is possible. Uh, Here, uh, I think the importance of President Carter's uh, Camp David agreement is absolutely crucial. And I think uh, we all need to be very grateful to President Carter for having molded that agreement and one that is held steady uh, and that is the basis and creates the possibility for more work. The second principle is peace is necessary, uh, all sides will benefit from peace including the united states uh, there is no way that anybody is getting anything out of the violence that's taking place and so peace is necessary the third is peace requires compromise by all sides um, an illusion uh... exists that uh... somehow people think that they can bring peace by unilateral actions i don't think you can uh, it requires compromise by the parties and therefore involves more than one party. And finally, I think you have to say that peace won't just happen. Um, there, it is not something that is easy to come by, and therefore there needs to be a lot of help. And for me, that means that the, that means that the United States has to play a role in this. Uh, I believe that the Bush administration has really wasted a lot of years... Uh, because they did want to distance themselves from the work that uh, took place during the Clinton administration. I think also, to be frank, that they were eager to humiliate Chairman Arafat, uh, which actually helped Chairman Arafat return to a role that I think he liked, which was being a victim. I spent a lot of time with Chairman Arafat, and a picture that I will never forget was him uh, in his Ramallah headquarters after they had been attacked and there he was with the Palestinian flag, a candle and CNN. Uh, And I could see that 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 was something uh, that uh, put him back in being a victim and I thought that he needed to be much more of a partner. Uh, I'm also very worried that the administration did not support uh, Mahmoud Abbas sufficiently when they had a chance. Uh, And it's no accident that Hamas as a result of that got stronger. So what are the problems? I think that in President Carter's book, I think he gives a very apt summary of what the issues are. And if I can quote, the desire of some Israelis for Palestinian land, the refusal of some Arabs to accept Israel as a neighbor, the absence of a clear and authoritative Palestinian voice acceptable to Israel, the refusal of both sides to join peace talks without onerous preconditions, the rise in Islamic fundamentalism and the recent lack of any protracted effort by the U.S. to pursue peace. So in a few lines, I think that summarizes everything. To me, the single most important problem, actually, was the initial refusal of the Arabs to accept Israel's right to exist and the subsequent use of terror and violence to change boundaries. There's no question, in my mind, that Israel aggravated the problem, uh, especially via the settlements and overreaction. I personally think that it's a mistake even to suggest that Israeli policy should be compared to those of South Africa. But as I write in my own book, which is called The Mighty and the Almighty, um, I, have, I say the following. The aggressive program of construction on disputed territory tarnished Israel's moral standing, deepened Arab anger, and contributed to Palestinian misery. So what about the current prospects? I I am pleased that the administration has finally decided uh, to engage. I think it's very important because, as I said, the U.S. needs to play an active role. The problem is that the Israeli leadership is very weak. Um, I think uh, Prime Minister Omert might be happy with President Bush's numbers. Uh, And the (laughs) Palestinians are divided. Um, and also the timing of the Mecca agreement by um, King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia, I think it was a very important agreement, and I hope that we have a chance to talk about it. But uh, somehow, Secretary Rice's trip um, shows that they weren't exactly coordinated um, and whether they really there was enough um, discussion about what had happened and how these particular trips worked. Uh, I don't believe that Secretary Rice's trip uh, where uh, she was not even able to get uh, Prime Minister Olmert and uh, President Mahmoud Abbas to be together uh, shows that it was particularly useful and that the Mecca agreement could have been used in some other way. The suggestions have been made that what is necessary now is a long ceasefire, uh, that that really is the best hope, and it would allow both sides to... uh, enjoy some calmness and maybe uh, resurrect or recreate or create in the first place uh, some confidence. I think we also have to understand how important the economic component is. Uh, When one reads about the situation of the Palestinians and the unemployment uh, and the difficulties that they have in exporting whatever farm goods they have, I think that it's essential uh, that Uh, we understand the economic component. Uh, Matt mentioned that I'm uh, on the board at the Aspen Institute, and we have a project um, now backed by the overseas private investment corporation, (OPIC) and uh, some Palestinian financing to, in fact, uh, set up a program of small loans for Palestinians on the West Bank. And so uh, I do think that the economic component is important, and it's certainly something Uh, that um, President Clinton tried to do, Stu Eisenstadt, who worked for President Carter, uh, helped to put together an economic package at that time, and I think we have to understand that. I also think, and the last point here, is that we have to look at this within a regional context. Obviously, the Palestinian-Israeli peace is vital for its own sake, and I don't think that it's responsible for all the problems in the Middle East but I do think that it's absolutely essential to look at the region. Um, The issues of Syria, Lebanon, Iran, and Iraq all raise important issues, uh, and I think they do have to be dealt with together. Uh, There has to be a regional strategy, and I look forward uh, to doing, um, to answering some questions and having a discussion on that. So, but here again, I see basic principles that need to guide the American position. Respect for human rights and territorial sovereignty, respect for culture, religion, and history. We need to listen more and lecture less. We have to have some respect for complexity. We tend to see things and people in terms of good and bad. Um, In fact, people are, most of them that I know, are a little bit of both. Uh, And we also have a very short attention span uh, in a region that has very long memories. Um, I do believe in democracy. Uh, I think the link... That uh, the Carter Center and the National Democratic Institute has had on a number of uh, democracy projects is very important. But democracy um, is uh, the right place to start. It might not solve everything, uh, but it is the right place to start. And for me, it's also the right place to stop and yield the floor to President Carter.
0: Well, first of all, let me say how thrilled and delighted I am to have Madeline back with us again. Uh, She's been a personal friend and a political ally for me for many, many years. I don't want to say how long. Uh, More than 30 years we've been together. And uh, when I uh, chose Ed Muskie to be my Secretary of State, I knew that she and Ed Muskie were the most intimate of uh, associates. And that has strengthened my confidence in her. Also, I have a great admiration for everything that she has done uh, in her public service. And I don't think that anyone could improve at all on the outline that Madeline has just given about the current situation and what needs to be done. And I'll try in my brief remarks not to duplicate what she did, but maybe to cover a few additional points. The fact is that since Israel became a nation, now many years ago, there has been a kind of a constant stream of American policy and very closely assigned to uh, aligned with international policy about the, the role of Israel. Uh, even back in the Balfour Declaration, before Israel became a nation, the idea was to give Israel a part of the Holy Land, as we might call it for abbreviation's sake, with a clear understanding that the rights and, and, the, and the privileges and the well-being of the displaced Arabs would not be destroyed or damaged. That was a basic premise. And then later, as we went along for for the um, formation of Israel, uh, a glorious uh, movement, in my opinion, and one well justified, uh, Israel was first given a smaller amount of property, as you know, and then later, in 1949, and subsequently, including confirmed in 1967, Israel was given 77 percent of all of the land between the Jordan River and, and the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, the Arabs were given, the Palestinians, 22%, and the other percent, if you're a math- mathematicians, you already figured out 1% left over, that's Gaza. And that's been the arrangement. And I think the official policy of every American government since then and the United Nations has been that that's the delineation of property division among the powers that live there. Well... When I became president, nobody asked me to start a negotiation, uh, even when I campaigned around the country for four years almost. Uh, I never had this come up much. People wanted me to defend Israel, and I obviously almost always agreed to, but I didn't have any big pressure on me when I became president to start negotiation. But I decided and announced before I was inaugurated, even. Uh, I think at the Woodrow Wilson Institute for speech, that one of my major purposes would be to start the peace process moving, which was fairly well dormant then as far as finding a definitive agreement between Israel and her neighbors. So back in those days, I thought that Yishak Rabin would be the prime minister, but he was soon replaced, as you know, by Menachem Begin. And then I began to meet with all the leaders who lived in that area, the Saudi Arabians, the Syrians, Assad wouldn't come to the United States and never did. I had to go to, uh, to Europe, to Switzerland, to meet with him, and then with, uh, with um, King Hussein and with uh, Yasser Arafat and with the Saudis and so forth to negotiate with him. I found that everybody was very timid, all the Arabs were, about dealing with Israel, except Sadat. Sadat was a bold, powerful, generous, wonderful leader, the best foreign leader I've ever met in my life. And he and I hit it off immediately, and he soon told me that he would like to start genuine discussions with Israel. And I knew that Menachem Begin, a very conservative Likud leader who had been accused of terrorism in the past, his, his organization Irgun blew up the King David Hotel and killed 96 people one night. But anyway, he was surprisingly amenable, so we had a long talks at Camp David. And the basic principle that I adopted and that all my pre- predecessors had adopted was that uh, Israel was to withdraw from the occupied territories, from occupied territories, and uh, that the Palestinians were to be given their basic rights. And that's what we negotiated for 13 days at, at Camp David. And out of, as a result of that, Prime Minister Begin reconfirmed in writing his commitment to UN, Sec- to UN Security Council Resolution 242 that says that the prohibition against the acquisition of territory by war and calls for Israel to withdraw from occupied territories. And uh, he also agreed persistently to give the Palestinians full autonomy. He emphasized the word full. In fact, he asked me to insert it. And then he also agreed to withdraw both military and political forces from Palestinian territory, the West Bank and Gaza. And that's about, that's when I left office. And so I really felt that, uh, that there was uh, an opportunity for that to be a permanent uh, arrangement. The thing that we did later that I, that I shouldn't overlook was t- uh, six months later to negotiate a peace treaty between Israel and Egypt. But, but what Sadat always wanted was to guarantee that Israel get out of Egypt's territory and guarantee full rights and privileges for the Palestinians. I was very disappointed uh, later when a, a massive effort was made to, to acquire and then to uh, confiscate legally and then to colonize major parts of the 22% left to the Palestinians. And so that became the biggest bone of contention. But I have to say that although some presidents have wavered back and forth and some have not been very interested, that that premise has always been maintained, that Israel would withdraw from Palestinian territory and that the Palestinians give their, be given their full rights. Well, those things did prevail, and uh, at one time Israel invaded Lebanon. I put pressure on uh, Prime Minister Begin uh, while I was president. He withdrew later when President Reagan was there. Israel invaded uh, Lebanon again and stayed there almost 20 years and finally withdrew. So so that's been kind of the background of it, and the Palestinians have been divided and, and deprived of their basic rights, and at the same time many Arabs have not been willing, and some still are not willing, to accept Israel's right to exist and to live in peace. Madeline mentioned a very important step that not many people remember, and that is, in 2002, King Abdullah of uh, Saudi Arabia, at that time he was crown prince, proposed that all the Arab countries publicly recognize Israel's right to exist and to live in peace within Israel's own borders. And that is the premise on which, recently, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice has begun to negotiate, or talk about negotiating, with the Palestinians and the Israelis. And, and that's that's kind of the history, a brief history of what has gone in the past. The book uh, that Madeline mentioned, I wasn't going to mention it myself, but uh, <laughs> was written uh, in a time of frustration because I admired greatly the extreme and dedicated effort that President Clinton and Madeline and others made to consummate a peace agreement during the last year or two of his term. If I had one criticism, it would be that he didn't start in his first term, but it was late. And the most substantive proposals made—the ones that are the most reasonable—actually took place toward the end of his term, or even a few days after he left office in Taba. But it was, it was a notable uh, effort. I decided to write the book quite reluctantly. I signed a contract to write the book with Simon and Schuster a lot more than two years ago now, and. I didn't know what to do about it because I saw as president and after I left office an almost total absence of any substantive discussions about the actual situation in the West Bank and Gaza. It's almost uh, totally inconceivable that any member of Congress would publicly declare that they would uh, adopt a balanced position between Israel and uh, the Palestinians, or that they would publicly espouse a demand that the basic human rights of Palestinians be honored, or that Israel would withdraw from its internationally designated borders. That's impossible. And and quite often in this country, that debate is missing. The last uh, three elections in which the Carter Center has been involved, we were involved with National Democratic Institute, as Madeline just pointed out, required me and all the representatives of the Carter Center, 40 or 50 at a time, to to go to the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem ahead of time. This is common practice for election observers. and, And literally to go all over the entire region, if possible, to visit almost every village or every substantial size village and to talk to the citizens, to talk to all the candidates, to explore weeks ahead of time, the major issues between them, their problems, their hopes, their dreams, their aspirations, their fears, their concerns, to learn as much as possible, to immerse ourselves in their culture. And that's where I began to see with the building of of a wall deep within the um, West Bank and the increasing number of uh, checkpoints, now over 500 checkpoints, and the fact that Israel has uh, built and still maintains over 200 settlements on Palestinian land, there's something that needs to be done about the improper treatment of Palestinians. So to bring about a debate on the subject and let that be a, a, a greater discussion than it has been in the past, at least, to try to promote the legitimate human rights of the Palestinians, and to bring about a renewal of the peace effort that had been abandoned when President Clinton left office. Not a single day of negotiations have been conducted since George Bush became president. Not a single day. And it's only been the last few weeks that his secretary of state has begun to have any sort of effort of peace talks. And that's dramatically different from what President Clinton did. So to restart the peace talks, to have some genuine debate and to point out the plight of the Palestinians was the major purpose of, of, my, of my recent book. And it has aroused a, a good bit of interest, and I'm, and I'm glad that it has. And uh, it hasn't, in its totality, it hasn't been unpleasant for me. Individual uh, comments and statements, yes, have been unpleasant but I think it has accomplished the basic purposes. What will happen now, of course, is a big question. I have, I have maintained um, an acquaintance uh, with the Palestinians on all sides. I'm not nearly so uh, strictly restrained as if I was in a public office. And, for instance, the uh, President of Syria, President Hafez al-Assad's son. I've known him since he was a college student. And uh, I felt an unwarranted restraint on me. Uh, When I was going over there for one of the um, elections, I think it was when, after Arafat died, routinely I notified the State Department and the White House that I was planning to visit Syria and talk to President Assad, the new President Assad, and I would be glad to take any messages to him, which I had done previously under President Reagan, And I was called immediately by the Security Council advisor in the White House. He ordered me, for the only time in my life, not to go. And he said that the policy of the government was to freeze any contact with President Assad. And I was very angry, to put it mildly. And we had an intense argument. And he said, well, I said, well, I've known him since he was a college student. I think it might be I could help and Syria's attitude toward uh, Iraq and maybe instigate him to be more helpful in Lebanon and, and maybe look toward the Golan Heights. And he said, absolutely not. The president has told me to tell you no. So I didn't go. So now we are faced with a problem of, of continued violence and threats in Lebanon, no communication at all with Syria that, plays a, 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 that can play a major constructive role and and no peace talks, and very few debates or discussions about the issue. So that's why I wrote uh, my book. And there's some controversial aspects of it, with which Madam has just disagreed. I'm not surprised. Uh, the reluctance, which I understand, to uh, compare uh, the West Bank. Any treatment of the Palestinians with what happened in South Africa. And I might conclude my remarks by repeating something I've said ad nauseum. That is, the book says Palestine peace, not apartheid. There's no punctuation in my book's titles, book titles. Palestine peace, not apartheid. I did not refer to Israel. I have never alleged that there was any semblance of apartheid in Israel. And it's very important to point that out, and in the book I make clear that when I mention apartheid, which in my definition in the book and many statements is the forced segregation of two people living in the same land and the domination of one people by the other, that's what I define as segregation, as apartheid. And I made it clear that this is not based on racism It should give no encouragement to anybody that equates uh, Zionism with racism. It's based on the desire of a minority of Israelis to uh, occupy, to confiscate, and to colonize the choice sites that are owned by the Palestinians, the top of mountains, fertile land, and control of water. And when you take 205 or more settlements and you connect them to each other with roads, and you look at a map, it looks like a spider web. And in many cases, those roads on Palestinian land are inaccessible legally to the Palestinians. Well, I think that should be changed. And uh, that feeling has been what's caused the controversy about the book, and the bottom line, I think I can say without fear of contradiction from my partner up here, we we share the same hope that we'll see a future where Israelis can live in peace and Palestinians will have their full human rights and justice, and the Bible says righteousness. that those rigid borders can be modified. I made the keynote speech when the Geneva Accords were revealed, and Matt Hodges and I worked on that ahead of time. And, And that calls for a negotiation between the Palestinians and Israelis under the supervision probably of the United States so that a substantial portion of the West Bank can be given to Israel permanently so that about half of all their settlers can stay where they are. And in exchange for that, an equivalent amount of land, maybe just east of Gaza or wherever, can be exchanged. So peace for Israel, justice for the Palestinians, I think will go a long way toward resolving one of the major problems that all of us presidents have had for the last 50 years almost and will remove a great cause of intense animosity and maybe a lot of the terrorism attacks they were seen in the past. So I think we have the same hopes and dreams. Thank you all.
1: I have been handed quite an array, about 20 to 25 (laughs) questions for you all. uh, And in no particular order, I'm going to ask them to you. Uh, Some are addressed to you, Mr. President. Others are addressed to you, Secretary Albright. Some of them have names. If you put your name on, uh, I'll I'll use the name so that you get credit for it. (laughs) All the blame. (laughs) All the blame. (laughs) Mr. President, in your book, you said that finding a solution will require leaders of goodwill who can build on the common ground from previous agreements. Can you tell us who you think some of those leaders are? And if, there, if none, su- no such leaders exist now, are you confident they will emerge?
0: Well, one leader that I would immediately think of would be Mahmoud Abbas, uh, or Abu Mazen as the Palestinians call him. He is the elected leader of the Palestinian community. And uh, he's also the head of the PLO. Those are two separate organizations. The only one that the Israelis fully recognize is the PLO. And there's no equivocation about Mahmoud Abbas representing the PLO. The United Nations also, as you know, has a, a, has a seat for the PLO. And the United States recognizes the PLO. And in the past, the Israelis have negotiated with the PLO to form the Oslo Accord. So, There's no, he's an unequivocal leader. I know him well. He was one of the key negotiators when President Clinton was in office. And I've met with him frequently. And uh, he has called repeatedly and consistently for genuine peace talks. And he's also said that he fully endorses all the previous agreements ever raised. And he has expressed to me full support for all facets of the so-called roadmap for peace put forward by the international community. So he is a leader that's uh, unavoidable and the only one, in my opinion, that could speak legitimately for the Palestinians. He had the support uh, of Arafat and his predecessors and also for the current leaders. So he's the president. Uh, I think the other key players in, in the negotiation will have to be the United States. There's no way to avoid that. And if the President of the United States give full, gives full backing, letting the Secretary of State do the negotiating, I did it, President Clinton did a lot of it. If President Bush doesn't want to, then let the Secretary of State do it, or the next President and the Secretary of State, whoever that might be. That's unavoidable. If there is too much sensitivity in this modern age for the United States to take the unilateral and exclusive responsibility for trying to bring a peace agreement, then we now have the International Quartet, which is the United States, the United Nations, the European Union, and Russia. And it may be that some sort of a multidimensional negotiating team could be formed to play the role of mediator. That, wouldn't be my, that would not be my first choice, but that's a fallback choice. The other thing is that whoever is the Prime Minister of Israel will have to be the leader. I've known Ehud Omet since he was a young man first running for position in a Knesset. I know him well. He's a strong, able, intelligent man. He's he suffered a lot lately from public opinion polls because of the uh, ill-advised adventure one way or the other into Lebanon. So he's weak now. But weakness need not deter people from acting uh, responsibly and strongly. There's no way to bypass the Prime Minister of Israel. So the United States, uh, Muhammad Abbas, and the Prime Ministers of Israel, whoever they might be, the President or Prime Minister will have to be the three key negotiators, backed up maybe, as I said, by representatives of the United Nations, the European Union, and, uh, and Russia.
1: The Next question is for both of you, and I'm going to add a bit to it. Do you think Israel can ever have a negotiating partner in Hamas or Hezbollah, and what, or is there anything we can do to address Iran's influence on such organizations? For, for both of you.
2: Well, I think that in order for Hamas to be a partner, they have to renounce violence as a tactic and uh, make it very clear that they recognize the existence of Israel. It doesn't mean that they uh, would have to automatically recognize uh, the borders because those are final uh, status issues. But I do think that they have to make clear that they at least recognize the fact that Israel exists and to give up violence as a mode. I think there are, um, President Carter talked about the elections. Um, uh, What I think is unfortunate is that there was not some kind of an entry fee to get into the election process, meaning that whoever participated in it would renounce violence. Uh, Hamas won, um, and they won primarily, I think, because they were closer to the people, and there was real questions about corruption and various aspects uh, among the Palestinian Authority. But it would have been good if the price of entry had been that they had to give up violence. Uh, Hamas is not a monolithic organization, and there is a model uh, that might work, and that is the Irish model, where a political arm of the IRA, Sinn Féin, uh, agreed to give up violence that then made it possible for negotiations uh, to go forward. Uh, I think it's very important to understand that Hamas provides, uh, created a support system among the people because it provided a lot of social services, and so uh, they play a very um, important political role. The Iranian influence is a serious issue uh, in the region. I would uh, say that I think, actually, Iran is the victor of the Iraq War so far, Um, and therefore they have more and more influence, Uh, and they have been supporters of Hezbollah in the past, and Hamas um, currently, Uh, but it is part of a much larger problem of how to deal with Iran. And it has something, I think, a little bit to tag onto what President Carter said about Syria. I don't see that we get anywhere if we decide not to talk to a particular country. Uh, Talking and diplomacy is not appeasement. It is the way that you deliver messages. President Carter did that very successfully. I did it occasionally. You don't, there isn't all just making nice. That is the way that countries communicate with each other. And if we are going to uh, have an effect on Iran, it requires us to talk to them. Uh, I am concerned about their growing influence, um, but what I'm most worried about is the potential of a Persian-Arab war. Uh, and I think that we need to really look out for that. And might I add, President Carter, on the leaders, I think it would also require uh, support from Arab leaders, Um, in addition to your your list Mm -hmm. that you gave on the last answer. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, King Abdullah of uh, Saudi Arabia as well as King Abdullah of Jordan uh, could be helpful, and President Mubarak can be. And so I think that the Arabs also have to get involved.
1: With the new Democratic Congress, do you believe the U.S. will be more able to or better able to achieve peace in the Middle East?
0: No. (laughs) (laughs) Relating to Israel and Palestine, no. However, I think the new Democratic Congress will be more inclined to accept the recommendations of the uh, Hamilton Baker Committee, which I support, and I think Madeleine does too. I've read her statements. And this would uh, mean, first of all, including Iran and uh, Syria in the discussions relating to Iraq, and they strongly recommended that peace talks be commenced and carried out between the Israelis and the Palestinians. So if they adhere to those two premises, uh, then I think that's a step uh, in the right direction. But uh, I don't see the prospect of, of um, Democratic members of Congress being any more uh, willing to tackle the sensitive issue that might be critical of Israel than have been their predecessors.
2: Well, I, I think, first of all, it's up to the administration to carry out Uh, peace talks, and uh, the Congress can encourage them. Um, I I do think uh, that there are people in Congress that are capable of seeing a variety of sides on this, Um, but I don't think that it's necessary to attack Israel. I think that we need to understand that Israel has been our friend and ally. Uh, We were the first ones, President Truman, to recognize them. Uh, we care a great deal about their security uh, for a number of reasons, some uh, cultural and historic, and the fact that they're a democracy. Uh, I, but I fully agree with President Carter that it's important to uh, understand what the Palestinians need, the legitimate rights of the Palestinians. And uh, I think that that is possible to do while at the same time uh, not thinking that this is all Israel's fault. So. Um, I think that members of Congress, especially the new ones, I think need to get very well versed in the various complexities of this issue, because as I said in my remarks, the U.S. will benefit also if there is peace in the region, and uh, I would hope that we would be able to um, press in some way this administration to move forward. Uh, They have been very reluctant, and I think the saddest part about, there are numbers of sad parts about changing presidents, Uh, but uh, the problem is that when one administration doesn't at all pick up what the other one did, and if, in fact, there had been some building when you left office, President Carter, on the things that you had accomplished, we might be in a different position, and if this administration had picked up on the hand of cards that President Clinton left on the Middle East, we also would be in a better position, and so this is one issue where partisanship is... Uh, making the situation much, much worse.
0: I, I want to disassociate myself from attacking Israel. I, I certainly didn't mean to imply that anybody should attack Israel. Uh, I think to bring Israel to the negotiating table, even under some substantial pressure, and to uh, have to orchestrate a peace agreement uh, based on international law is, is better for Israel. And, and I don't look upon that as attacking Israel. We have to defend Israel. But that, that's just one of the... Uh, the points that need to be made. And I I certainly don't want to speak for Hamas. I'm, after the election was over, we we had, during the election a year ago, in January, when Hamas won 42% of the votes, I was constrained, as were the members of the National Democratic Institute, which Madeline indirectly heads, that we would not uh, talk to or negotiate with Hamas during the election. However, uh, the day after the election, I went to Ramallah to meet with Abu Abbas, Mahmoud Abbas. And I also met with a, a, a Hamas leader who's now, he was now in prison because he was elected to the parliament. He lives in Ramallah. He's a medical doctor. And, and we talked to him. And, and, and I urged them then to uh, recognize Israel, to comply with the restraints that are preventing international uh, aid and other things to go to the Palestinians. He said, which Israel? Is it Israel that occupied our land? Is it Israel that's building settlements all over West Bank? Is it Israel that won't let us vote in East Jerusalem? Is it Israel that won't withdraw to their own land? I I didn't argue with him, but that was his argument. Also, he claimed, I'm not vouching for this, that the Hamas has a a, a hudna which is a, a ceasefire, not permanent. He made it clear. He said this is for two years, 10 years, or 50 years, that, that we will maintain that. And they claimed, I haven't seen anything to refute that, that beginning in the summer of, of 2004, since then, they have not committed what they call a terrorist act. They have fought back and forth a little bit, sometime including rockets, which is very bad. But, uh, but they have renounced uh, terrorism compared to what they did before. So, so I don't see this as an impossibility. Also, Haniya, who is now forming a new government, as you know, has publicly stated that if his full support for Mahmoud Abbas to negotiate for all the Palestinians, and he has said that if Abbas can conclude a peace agreement that can then be submitted to the Palestinian people for a referendum. And if the Palestinian people approve it in a referendum, then, then Hamas would modify its position. That, that's very unclear. But it, it shows that there's a possibility. And, and the final point that, that I want to make as a glimmer of potential optimism is that the overwhelming percentage of Palestinians strongly want peace. And in December, two months ago, the Harry S. Truman Institute of uh, Hebrew University in Jerusalem did a public opinion poll and it showed that 81% of Palestinians said they wanted peace based on Israel withdrawing with some modifications and Palestinians being given their rights. At the same time, 67% of Israelis said the same thing. And for the last 40 years, I've studied the public opinion polls very closely, for the last 40 years about 60% of the Israelis have always been in favor of quote, exchanging territory for peace. That is going to require some final negotiations, yes. But the bottom line is that the Israeli people want peace. A strong majority of the The Palestinians want peace. I think the Lebanese, the Syrians, the Jordanians, the Egyptians want peace. And and if that can never be forcefully forced on their recalcitrant or timid political leaders, then the prospects are not impossible. I think they're possible.
1: The next question is for Secretary Albright. And you had to see this coming. Mm -hmm. When I was your student at Georgetown (laughs) back in the Cold War 1980s, you once said that when historians look back at the 20th century, the rise of militant Islam might be seen as the most important, even more important event than the rise of communism. Can you consult your uncannily accurate crystal ball again? What issue are we not paying enough attention to now that could emerge as a major force in world politics in the next 30 to 50 years? And this was from Natalie Kowalski, who I guess is your student.
2: Yes, I remember Natalie, actually. Um, You know, I, at that stage, I was um, also speaking about, uh, I think I shocked that class by um, saying that I thought the world after the Cold War was going to be even more dangerous than the one uh, during the Cold War. Uh, And unfortunately, I'm right about that. What I am concerned about, generally, is that we don't fully understand what is happening in the 21st century. Um, We haven't started out very well. I know um, with some presumption, you said that I will always be remembered as the first woman Secretary of State, which I am. But I used to say, shortly after I was named, which is where the presumption comes in, (laughs) that I was the last Secretary of State of the 20th century and the first of the 21st which assumed that President Clinton would keep me. He did, and so I am. Um, and so we were beginning to think a lot about what the 21st century would look like and what the various threats were going to be. And they are what are primarily known as transnational threats that the system is not prepared to handle at all. Uh, and I think the issues, uh, President Carter and I were just talking about this and with Rosalind, is I think the biggest problems out there are um, connected with the widening gap between the rich and the poor. Uh, There are about 6 billion people in the world. Uh, The vast majority of them are poor. And the vast majority of them uh, live in um, a variety of areas where they uh, have no connection to the governments where they live or there are no governments. Uh, They, as a result of modern technology, can uh, see exactly what the rich have. Uh, I don't blame terrorism on poverty. Uh, Terrorism comes from a variety of different uh, causes. But clearly, a sense of being uh, isolated and um, uh, really delegitimized and feeling that you are not a part of any society, I think, is one of the most dangerous aspects. And you link that to resource problems uh, throughout the world. President Carter was talking about water issues in the Middle East. If you all think we're now arguing a lot about oil, wait till we start arguing about water. Uh, and so I see the problems coming from the rich-poor divide, the issues of resources, which then become fueled by a complete lack of understanding of each other's religious backgrounds. and so. That can then, uh, the book that I've written is really about that we need to understand uh, the strength and basis of religion in a lot of our conflicts and have to figure out uh, how to bring people together rather than drive them apart. But the rich-poor divide is my biggest issue.
1: I wanted to ask you both about this issue of preconditions as a strategic or tactical element in negotiations today. As you know, the Quartet has imposed a series of three preconditions of a unilateral nature on the Palestinians before negotiations are supposed to open. How do each of you feel about the use of preconditions of this type in uh, a negotiation process such as the one we hope to have in the Middle East?
0: Well, I don't don't really uh, equate those with preconditions because what it's spelled out is a step-by-step procedure that's supposed to have been followed that leads up to the you know agreement on the on the most controversial issues but I don't think there are steps that, that both sides have to accept on one side before they move forward but I think to summarize what I consider to be the only reasonable uh, outline for a peace agreement would equate almost exactly with the Geneva course and that was built upon the work that Bill Clinton did. Uh, I think just two or three days after he left office, there was a meeting at Taba, a little coastal town. And uh, it was not an official meeting. Uh, no American was there. And the Prime Minister of, uh, of Israel, um, Barack, said that he didn't authorize the Israelis to negotiate But unofficially, they began to talk about what might be a solution, not only to the border between Israel and Egypt, but what could be done about the return of Palestinians to their former homelands. What could be done about Jerusalem? Those are the three big ifs. And they worked for several years on it. And and when I was given the Nobel Peace Prize, we thought they had an agreement. And the chief negotiators came over here, and uh, they suggested that, uh, that we go from Oslo to Sweden and let them announce the agreement. But the Swedes were reluctant to do that, and so they had some more time to negotiate. And it was finally announced in November of 2003, wasn't it, Matt? December. December 1st. December of 2003. Anyway, there were... There were 250 people in Geneva. It was financed by the Swiss. A lot of Israelis, a lot of Palestinians. 50 leaders endorsed it, including Bill Clinton, including Tony Blair, including Jacques Chirac. Uh, I think about 30 Nobel laureates endorsed it. Uh, President Bush didn't make any statement, but he authorized his Secretary of State, Colin Powell, to meet with the two negotiators, they presented, they printed up tens of thousands of copies of the Geneva Accords. And they, they put them in almost every mailbox in Israel and in the Palestinian areas. And there were public opinion polls run. In fact, James Baker Institute, former Secretary of State's Institute, did the polling. And they found that a strong majority accepted those agreements, those premises. They were all unofficial, though. And Ariel Sharon, the Prime Minister of Israel, condemned it. Well, it outlined what I mentioned earlier, and that is that the contentious issue of the border would be modified to let half the Israelis stay in Palestinian territory. On return, which is maybe the most difficult for the Israelis, Uh, UN Resolution 194 calls for the right of return for Palestinians who lost their land as Israel was made into a nation. That, there was a compromise reached there that I think is the only one, and that is that the Palestinians could return to the West Bank and Gaza, but they could only return to Israel, which would pack Israel with Arabs, if Israel approved each case individually. And there were some very careful delineations, very similar to what Bill Clinton had worked out, on, on how you handle the holy sites in Jerusalem. It was almost a complete package. And I think that no matter who negotiates in the future, whether it's two years from now or five years from now, whatever, that the final result is not going to be very different from the uh, Geneva Accords. And, I, and that's why I still retain hope. It's a very reasonable approach uh, and, and not bad for either side.
2: I think on the question of well preconditions, I, I do think that uh, what the Quartet has laid down are not really standard preconditions. And what they are is, is the necessity to recognize Israel. If, you're, if there's going to be a negotiation, the side has to at least recognize that the state exists. So I think that that is a, uh, just a, a statement of fact. Generally, uh, if one can talk about negotiations, I think you can totally prevent any kind of negotiation if you have so many preconditions that you'll never get to the table. Um, And I think that is part of the issue uh, with Iran. Uh, It was part of the issue for various parts of the North Korean negotiation. And you sometimes have to decide uh, that you have to unblock those and put all the issues on the table because you can precondition yourself out of uh, any dialogue at all.
1: Our next question is from uh, Ziad Kayali who says Mr. President I'm an Arab American who has three wonderful boys how do I explain to them the fact that uh, uh, I do have a second home once called Palestine but it's invisible what do I tell them about their future
0: Sure that uh,
1: how do I explain to his how does Mr. Kayali explain to his sons the fact that they have a second home called Palestine but it's invisible and what does he tell them about their future?
0: Well, basically I think he could tell them what I just responded, that I think it's almost inconceivable that Israel will ever agree to unlimited return of Palestinians. Uh, What I wrote about in my book was that the basic premises of of the Geneva Court should apply, and and that there be a a large fund established in, in the International Court of Claims that could be used to compensate Palestinians as an alternative to coming back to their previous homes. That's still a viable possibility. Uh, when we had the hostage crisis when I was president, I confiscated $12 billion of uh, Iranian uh, money, $2 billion in gold, by the way, in the uh, Bank of England. And we put that in escrow with the idea that every, person in America that had uh, lost a bulldozer or had not been paid for building schoolhouses or roads and so forth, could appeal to this international court of claims and they would be paid off. And and when uh, George H.W. Bush was about halfway through his term, uh, then James Baker called me one night and said, President Carter, we've now finished the last claim and we've got almost $6 billion left. What do we do with it? I said, give it back to the Iranians. It's their money. But but the point I'm making is that, that there is already a legal entity, the International Court of Claims, that could be used to settle financially the claims of children, like he just mentioned, who have a claim on their previous property in in their former home, that if they couldn't actually get the property back, they could get compensated for it in a reasonable way.
2: Can I- The the return of um, refugees, like everything else that's part of this, is incredibly complicated because, at least this was true when uh, President Clinton was at Camp David, was that the arguments made is that Israel also had to recognize that the refugees, that they were responsible for having created the refugees, which is morally impossible because uh, they believe that they were created This came as a result of the War of Independence. So it became a much more complicated kind of uh, existential issue. Uh, That's one part of it. The other part, and I think that what turns up in the Geneva Accords is very much based on on what we worked out, um, as I call it, our camp, David, is that um, because there would be a Palestine, Uh, that would be the place where the right of return would take place. And then Israel, as a sovereign country, like any other country, uh, should have the right to decide what the numbers were that they would take in of uh, returnees. And then the idea that there were lots of people, actually, Palestinians, who were living in various countries, um, some in Latin America, some uh, in Europe, some in the United States, actually were not necessarily desirous of going home, but they were desirous of, of a claim that then could be paid out of this particular fund.
0: Mac, you also have to remember that there are two uh, groups of, of uh, refugees. One is uh, what happened in 48 or 49, the other one is what happened in 67. Right. So I agree with Madeline, you can't hold Israelis responsible for what the United Nations declared and what the United States approved, that forced a lot of Palestinians out of what's now Israel. But the subsequent exodus of Palestinians, there it might be a little more difficult. And, and I would say, in order to get an agreement, not to call on Israel to be responsible for financial payment, but to let uh, the United States and, and France and England and Germany and, and Japan and, and, and wealthy countries, let the Arab countries put in an, enough pot, money, to make the compensation. But if you start putting that financial burden on Israel, they're not going to pay it. If they do, the United States will furnish the money. Right.
1: <laughs>
0: Which would be OK with me, by the
1: way. Each of you have referred to your Camp Davids. Uh, we have a question here that asks you to compare and contrast the processes that each of you uh, were engaged in, the differences and, uh, uh, in your efforts to mediate both in 1978 and in
0: 2000. Could you comment on those differences? Well, I won't I won't try to compare them. I'll just tell you the technique that I used and, and that I still use. Uh, I personally in the Carter Center have been involved in a lot of, of uh, negotiations. Uh, and I have always used what I call a single document method. I try to study ahead of time all the facets of of the issue, and what each side has publicly or privately demanded from me as a mediator that they want to achieve. And so I, before I get there, uh, with the help of a lot of people, I write out what I think is a fair agreement on one document, and then I go back and forth to both sides and show them exactly the language that I propose. And if there is a geographical delineation, I draw the map and let them know exactly on the map what is going to happen. And so there's never any question in either side's mind about what they are agreeing to or what they are rejecting. The second thing is that in the principles of negotiation, every time either side makes a concession, They have got to be convinced that what they're giving up is less than what they're going to get. It's a good deal for them. Both sides have to agree to each step. And then the final thing is that both sides have got to feel that they won. It's a common thing, win-win. And and I believe that now, 27 years later, the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt, I, I would guess that both sides felt that they won. But but the, the clarity of the proposal has got to be unequivocal, and it's very difficult with somebody like Menachem Begin, who was a, a semanticist. He was a detailed man, and, and before we got to Camp David, this is just one footnote to history, I had a um, a thick psychological analysis done on both men. <laughs> and Rosa and I went out to... Um, Yellowstone, and stayed in a resort, and I studied both those books. But, but it was written by historians and biographers and psychologists and psychiatrists who analyzed how both men should, would react, Begin and Sadat, under pressure. And, and they, to, to conclude my rambling comment, the bottom line was that under pressure, Begin resorts to minutia, to details, like the meaning of a particular word or an adjective. Under pressure, Sadat resorted to generalities, talking about regional things or global things. So that meant that since the two men were so different, they would kind of fit together. But the the main thing is the specificity and exactness of what you are proposing so both sides understand the same thing. And eventually, after 13 days, um, they both Agreed, and the Knesset approved the agreement by an 85% vote.
2: I think, actually, this would be a fascinating organized study because um, I think it was a little bit different. Um, uh, our going to Camp David came about as a different uh, reason. A lot of people think that we went to Camp David because President Clinton wanted a legacy. That's not what it was about. It was that Prime Minister Barack... Uh, felt that he had some pretty bold ideas um, in terms of trying to to deal with uh, the final status issues, and uh, he wanted to use the last months of President Clinton's uh, term in order to see if he could get an agreement. The problem was that he wouldn't tell us what his bottom lines were before we got there. Uh, Chairman Arafat did not want to be there, and uh, Part of my job was to persuade him to come. Uh, and so the mood was uh, probably different than yours. Um, and then when we got there, uh, Chairman Arafat came first, and Barack wasn't there because Barack was uh, experiencing the ultimate pain of a no-confidence vote, which he managed to win. But So the mood, just the mood, was very bad uh, when they got there. Uh, I imagine that if uh, President Carter and I said to anybody here, would you like to spend two weeks at Camp David, you might say yes. Um, if I, I spent two weeks in the rain with Israelis and Palestinians at Camp David, I don't care if I ever go back. Um, <laughs> but because the mood was very hard and very bad, and trying to get them together uh, was a problem. The issue of a single paper um, it was uh, there, President Clinton had a plan in his head, uh, but there was not a single paper. <clears throat> and there were questions about creating uh, an Israeli paper and a Palestinian paper. I think that uh, it would be very interesting if you and President Clinton actually had this conversation because I think there is a, was a somewhat different approach, both at Y and at Camp David. What President Clinton tried very hard to do was to uh, get each side to understand the perspective of the other. Uh, at Y, he was able to get Prime Minister Netanyahu and Arafat at a dinner. It was just President Clinton and the two of them and me and a note taker. And just getting, President Clinton was very good about feeling your pain, so he was trying to get them to feel each other's pain. Um, And it was an interesting exercise. But ultimately, after several days of listening to them, then he sat there with a yellow pad and had columns for what each of them were, and then began to suggest various uh, combinations to them. But the problem really was that while the Israelis had these bold ideas, as I said, they didn't share them with us. Therefore, uh, Chairman Arafat, I think, um, was certainly not a detailed person, but he, I think, felt... Uh, that he was not in a position to make decisions about the disposition of the holy places. But uh, I have to say, President Carter, you sound um, as if you were, well, we know you were very organized about all this. But having been a a minor player at the White House, we were so nervous that you would never come back. Uh, Because when were you coming back down from the mountains so that we could say we had a success? And meanwhile, you knew exactly what you were doing. (laughs) But it would be interesting. It would,
1: yeah. The next question is for you, Secretary Albright. Uh, What would you say is the greatest contrast between your turn in office and the current Secretary of State? And what advice advice would you give Secretary Rice about how to break the uh, Palestinian-Israeli stalemate?
2: Well, there's a rule about never criticizing the current Secretary of State. but um, I have to tell you this. I don't know whether any of you know this story, but she and I have a very interesting relationship. Uh, my father was a professor at the University of Denver. And um, he then ultimately, I wasn't born in the United States. We go to the University of Denver. He ultimately became dean of the Graduate School of International Studies. Uh, and he died in 1977 unfortunately, just before I went to the White House, so he never knew that. Uh, And when there were lots of tributes and flowers, and among them was a ceramic canister in the shape of a piano with a lot of leaves, and I said to my mother, where did this come from? And she said, it's from your father's favorite student, Condoleezza Rice. What happened was that she had gone to the University of Denver as a music major, hence the piano, uh, took a course in international relations from my father, and decided to switch majors. Um, So in 1987, um, when I was working for my long string of losing Democratic presidential candidates, uh, (laughs) I was getting foreign policy advisors for Michael Dukakis, and I thought, perfect. Here is this uh, student of my father's, an expert in Soviet studies, a woman, African-American, from the West Coast. So I called her up and I said, Condi, would you like to be an advisor to Michael Dukakis? And she said, Madeline? I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm a Republican.
1: Um,
2: And I said, Condi, how could you be? We had the same father. Uh, uh, We have um, talked a couple of times since, and I have said that I channel with my father much better than she does. Um, And so I am concerned about the following, which is that, and this is not just the Secretary of State, it's the, the approach of the Bush administration, which is um, that uh, the world is a difficult and complicated place where many things are going on at the same time, that not enough attention is paid to a whole host of other issues uh, that impact upon each other, Uh, and that there is um, too much um, uh, faith in the fact that everything they're doing is right and not enough listening. And I found uh, that a leader... Uh, a president or a secretary of state or anybody, in order to be a leader, has to listen and not have preconceived notions, and that's what worries me about this administration specifically—a certainty uh, about what they know and not enough recognition about what they don't know.
0: Thank you. I think it's. It's something that everybody ought to remember is that the Secretary of State doesn't make the ultimate decisions. And I've talked to Connie Rice often, and I've met with her just with just her there and President George W. Bush and me in some very sensitive discussions. And I've seen some of her public statements uh, in an innovative when an innovative question was raised. I think she would be much more amenable to intense concentration on Mideast peace process and much more amenable to having open discussions or free discussions with Syria uh, than than President Bush is willing to let her do. That's my own opinion. I think it's accurate. So, you know, you can't really blame. Secretary of State too much when they uh, take a position that their boss has uh, adopted. And on the other hand, you can't give them too much credit uh, either without acknowledging that the president makes the ultimate decisions. So I, I, I like Condi Rice. I think she's a brilliant young woman, and, uh, and, and I, I would like to see her given a little more f- uh, freeway.
1: We haven't talked much about the uh, recently announced Mecca agreement, and one of our questioners asks whether you see uh, the new cooperation between Hamas and Fatah as a positive or negative development.
0: Well, I see it as a positive development. Um, I don't think there's any state secrets here, uh, if if I point out that um, I know all the people involved Including the Hamas leaders and also um, uh, the King of um, of Saudi Arabia, at least by telephone calls. I know, mm-hmm. I know, I've known him a long time. And before the um, meeting was called at Mecca, we contacted uh, King Abdullah personally. Uh, Matt delivered the, the message with some thoughts that we had. The main thing was that uh, the conflict that the Palestinians were perpetrating on each other in Gaza uh, was a black eye for all Palestinians. It was unnecessary and that we hoped that uh, Saudi Arabia would exert its maximum pressure on both of them to uh, have a ceasefire. And secondly, that hopefully all the Palestinians could adopt the same basic uh, principles That that I mentioned earlier in the 2002 agreement, when all every Arab country in the world agreed to recognize Israel's right to exist and to live in peace, and um, Hamas has been willing to say um, some make some steps toward the end of violence, but not completely, because they've never said that they would not attack Israelis of all kinds who were in the West Bank and Gaza. They have said that they would not attack Israelis in Israel. So they got a got a way to go yet uh, for Hamas to uh, comply with the uh, three requirements that Madeleine has mentioned two or three times, with which I agree. But I, I think it was a step in the right direction. And my hope is that um, Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries will continue to put maximum pressure on Hamas. Some of the key Hamas leaders, as you know, uh, live in uh, Syria, and pull the strings from Damascus, and uh, we've been able to, t- to communicate with them, and also with, uh, with, uh, pre- with with President Assad, to put his to use his influence with them. So it's not a hopeless case. And uh, since 81 uh, percent of the Palestinians want peace on the reasonable terms, that might be an overriding factor in the future.
2: Um, I think it's an important meeting. I'm very glad to see King Abdullah take this kind of a a role. Um, I know him well, uh, when he was crown prince particularly, and uh, I do think it's an important uh, step forward. But I think we have to wait to see what the government looks like that they form. Uh, They have now five weeks to put the government together. There have been some uh, discussions about the division of the cabinet posts, Uh, And the way it looks now is that Hamas would have the cabinet posts that were most directly related to social issues and the people. Um, I think Mahmoud Abbas is much weaker than he was earlier. Uh, And the question is whether this kind of a unity government Um, can do as well or better than uh, a technocratic one that he was thinking about, but I think it's an important step forward if it can build, but I think we have to wait to see what this new government really looks like. Uh, And um, is it really prepared to um, enter into uh, discussions? But it's interesting, for me it's a big step that King Abdullah did this, and also The other part of this is whether the Saudis, they promised a billion dollars to the Palestinians, uh, whether they will deliver that or not. Because ultimately, as I said earlier, and President Carter did too, the economic aspects, the lives of the Palestinians, I I have traveled a lot, um, both in Gaza and the West Bank, and and I think it is appalling the way that Palestinians live and um, the lack of their uh, now capability of having jobs It's a very young population, and so uh, I hope that the Saudis come through with this money.
1: We have time for one more question. Um, And our questioner here posits the notion that apartheid, uh, as it's practiced and as it's known, is really an issue of fear, creation of fear, people living in fear. But it's an interesting twist in the question. What does the United States need to do to change the image we, the United States, give of a
0: nation to fear? Well, we're a fearful nation, and uh, since Madeline was Secretary of State, there's been a dramatic reduction almost all over the world in trust and esteem by foreigners toward America. Uh, When I was in office, we had almost, I wouldn't say unanimous, but overwhelming approbation and friendship with, say, the Jordanians and, and Egypt. I, I saw the results of a Pew poll when I was writing my last book that showed that at one time only 2% of the population of Jordan looked with favor on the United States and 5% in Egypt at that time. And, and part of it is because of, the, of an unprecedented policy toward the utilization of military power. All the previous presidents, I presume since George Washington, have said we'll use our military power only if our security is endangered. Now, as you know, George W. Bush went to West Point a few years ago and said we're going to uh, engage in a new policy of preemptive war. That is, we're going to go to war if we think that sometime in the future a nation might do something that causes our security to be in danger. That that's a, is a, a dramatic change. And although it may have gone with just a few headlines in the United States, it has resonated all over the rest of the world. And they've seen our unwarranted invasion of Iraq and the bombing. That We don't know how many tens of thousands of innocent Iraqis it's killed and so forth. And the pursuit of that, we're now with all, almost all of our allies withdrawing, and an increase in our people. I think that all of that is causing a great deal of fear that the United States resorts, first, to use of military power and, secondly, to negotiation and the pursuit of peaceful resolution of differences.
2: Nothing made me prouder than to represent the United States. And I over and over again said that we were an indispensable nation, meaning that our engagement in the world was essential, but not necessarily alone. I think we are exceptional, but we can't ask that exceptions be made for us. And what I think has happened is a lot of Americans want to be loved. We we don't have to be loved, but we shouldn't be feared. We should be respected. And I think that Iraq is going to go down in history as the greatest disaster in American foreign policy because because we have lost the element of the goodness of American power and we have lost our moral authority, which is what President Carter gave us when he put human rights as central to American foreign policy. And I am very troubled by that. And the job of the next president will be to restore the goodness of American power. Uh, And I hope very much that we have that opportunity and that uh, the great work that President Carter has done uh, to put forward the best image of the United States in terms of the work that he's done in cure, helping to cure disease, his support for democracy. Uh, and I'm very proud to have worked for President Carter. Thank you.
1: about the best note that we could possibly hope to end on. I would like to thank President Carter and Secretary Albright for taking the time to be with us tonight and to thank you, our guests, for your interest in our work. If you'd like more information either on the work of the Carter Center or on the Albright Group, there's informational material outside for you. The next program in our conversation series is called Your Mental Health at Work and will take place on April April 26, 2007. Uh, former First Lady and our Mental Health Task Force founder Rosalind Carter will lead this conversation on how workplace conditions affect employees' mental health and on-the-job productivity. The event is free and no RSVPs required. If you need more information, you can go to our website www.cartercenter.org. One administrative note: If you all will please stay in your seats until our speakers are able to uh, move on. Uh, and with that. I will thank you very much for joining us tonight, and we look forward to seeing you in April.
0: This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.